0: more people are giving the opportunity to recognise that there is purpose in chasing your dream, then we can see beautiful things coming to light in the world. The reality of the world today is, you know, we're forced to go through the educational system, get a a number of qualifications, and go get a job, get a mortgage, marriage, kids, and so on and so forth, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But if you're passionate about something, something, anything, As long as it's what's relevant to you, and you're good at it, then we should be given every opportunity to to pursue that passion.
1: We are back for another episode of Everyday Leadership, and we've got a great one today. Imagine being aged 10 and building, I'm gonna say it again, building our computer system, which does not exist. You have not seen anywhere where you build a computer system that's absolutely crazy just so that you can play games and your mom doesn't hear you that's what my guest Chip who's a CEO of Zanshura did he built something which actually took another 6 or 7 years to be available commercially to everyone else he shares a lot more about that story in the podcast today and obviously we talk about computing we talk about gaming and parenting because you always get those two things coming up time and time again. We talk about his time with the police. We talk about chasing your dreams and why it took so long between what he did at 10 to the company he now has now. Why that gap really, really existed. It speaks into the lives that we live and the things that we chase and things that we go after. It also speaks to timing and being patient. Leadership, as you know, we're going to delve into what that means to him as well right at the end. But today's episode, I know you're going to enjoy. So let me stop talking so we can get straight into it. Today, I have a pleasure of talking to, I'm going to say someone who I can describe as having a portfolio career. like (laughs) From working in... IT in different organizations from London College of Fashion, SAW, to the Metropolitan Police, to Ministry of Justice. I mean look at look at the names already. To running his own organization where he's currently now the CEO and the founder of Zanshuri, which we're gonna delve into a little bit more. Chip in the War Concord. Did I get that
0: right? Yeah, that's good
1: enough, man. Walk on. Yeah, that's not good enough. I want, I want to get it right. <laughs> I want to get it right. I don't want to get it good enough. You say it. i so glad. Like... Walk, on. <laughs> that's, good. walk on, cut. that's good. How are you doing? I'm good, bro. I'm good. You good? I'm good, man. It's good to have to chop it up on here, hair. And I like to go back to the origin. And I guess for you, I want to go back to the younger chip who's playing games and trying to figure out how to keep on playing games while making sure that his parents were not going to hear him. Like, I want, to, I want to hear that story of, from everything I read, I think that's where the birth of your love for computing and things like that came about. So let's go back to that time. And, and can you share that story?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was quite fortunate that, you know, we we always had computers in the house. My father dabbled in architectural design. So the company he was working with at the time, I gave him a computer to use at home. And when you wasn't using that, I was usually using it. I just wanted to understand how it worked. I wanted to see what I could do. And um, in fairly short order, I found out about computer games. I thought, that like, was fantastic, you know. And, and, and as soon as I finished any kind of homework and printed things out, which, you know, back then, without un- unveiling my age too clearly, you know, in the, the mid-1980s, handing in your homework printed out was very, very rare. I took advantage of the opportunity to retain my posters to just pet by always doing that. They also meant that when the work was done, I could play computer games and just expand my knowledge of, you know, flight simulators. Uh, We're not talking about any advanced 3D graphics. We're talking very, very basic CGA blocks and screening, that kind of thing. But the issue around it was the noise, not so much of the, the games themselves, but the noise of the computers. It got to the point where my parents, uh, my mother like specifically, was always aware of, you know, how much time I'd been spending on the computer and the likelihood that I was probably playing games or doing something that wasn't necessarily constructive in her understanding. You know. Back then, computers weren't seen as a uh, massive route to success, especially in an African household. It was quite clear, I mean, my, my mother really wanted me to go down and do a doctor route or, you know, a moral route, and it was just something that I never wanted to do. So short of becoming the, the black sheep of the family, I just decided that I wanted to experiment with computers. I wanted to find out how it worked, what the sources of the noise was inside and how I could make that better, you know, just make improvements really. As my father was working with this company and his computers were upgraded, he usually got to keep the previous model. I took it upon myself to take it apart with a view of making it better. So it was still very, very rare to, you know, have that kind of opportunity as a, as a child. But there was a lot of material in you know, computer fairs, which were weekly, you know, market trips that my father and I took now and then. We could always pick up bits and pieces, like hard drives, expansion cards, and you know, just uh, cabling. And I was really able to get into the depths of how the system worked, how systems were called, which was really interesting to me, and why some systems were seen as being better than others. You know, what was it that you could do to make a system better? How could you, you know, do your own upgrades at home? And this was, you know, it was very much common nowadays. But back then, it was unheard of. It. it was very, very rare. How old were you? I was probably about eight or nine years old, really. For an eight to nine year old to be thinking that way, that is
1: that is quite sophisticated.
0: Well, in uh, I had no friends, none at all, zero. So <laughs> that was the uh, it was an escape for me. It was a great way of. Um, doing something that would take me away from my day-to-day. I was very studious. I was very much a geek. Even though I didn't necessarily feel that I wanted friends, I think that as human beings, we always recognise that there's something missing if we don't have friends. So that kind of became a friendship for me. I guess it sounds a bit sad, but it was wonderful for me because I was always able to experiment. I was always able to try and to push and to see if this works and if it doesn't work then find out why and find out why something else works and so it was great it was great it was, it was all, at that point in time i didn't know that it was going to lead me to the career that i now find myself in but had i known then i guess i would have been quite you know happy to continue pushing forward because i i did enjoy it then, and i do now Long story short two years later when i was 10 years old i was able to build my own computer with parts that you know, we purchased from the, the computer fair, it was better than the computers which my dad was being supplied through his work, mainly because I was able to look at the areas where callings had been cut, and the, like so the IBM and the architecture machines back then. I wasn't really thinking, right, I'm going to make a better corporate machine. No. My plan was to make a good computer, which was quiet, and didn't make noise, then so my mom wouldn't tell me off for so spending too much time playing computer games. <laughs> and I was able to achieve that. It was really quite a Heath Robinson solution, ultimately, because whilst the computer itself was quite conventional, the cooling methodologies that I used was unheard of. It was completely new back then. We had a desktop refrigerator, and I knew that if I could find a way of introducing the cold air from the refrigerator, to the heat-producing components of the computer, specifically the CPU, then I could eliminate the CPU fan, the induction fan, the exhaust fan. Those the three noise-creating components gotten rid of in one full sweep. So I used a uh, dry-cleaning duct, which I don't think my mom's for forgiving me for today even. <laughs> I used the desktop refrigerator and a significant quantity of, uh, black masking tape, was able to take one end of the duct on top of the CPU array in the computer, obviously i removed the case and another end into the, uh, refrigerator, compressed the uh, duct quite significantly and sealed the opening again with the black masking tape. So they look diabolical, but with the desktop uh, refrigerator underneath the desk next to the computer, then as you were sat in front of it, all you saw were the keyboard, the computer, and the keyboard, the screen, and the mouse. And it worked perfectly. There were no fans. The computer was absolutely silent. And it performed better, if anything, than it did with fans, because it was completely silent. Um, It produced significantly less heat, and it could run for as long as I wanted it to run. We only started seeing solutions of that nature, probably about... 25 years later, when people started looking at nitrogen cooling.
1: Yeah, 2000.
0: Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. very so, yeah, yeah. rare.
1: Listen to you talk, even now, I'm like, no, you cannot just trying to struggle to picture it, but you're 10 and you come up with this genius solution to a problem just because you want to play <laughs> you want to play more computer games yeah. and then you now measure that with what you said earlier on which was if i had known i was going to be in my path in my industry so it was, even at that point in time you weren't even thinking that oh i want to keep on doing this or i want to grow this it was just i want to do something different understand why i fixed yeah. the problem and well, that's what the the drive was behind creating this ingenious solution at that point in time oh
0: absolutely absolutely well, I mean, in retrospect, you can see that back then, I had just no idea. If anyone had asked me what I wanted to do, I think that I probably would have been thinking about going into finance or something of that nature. Like as I said, I had no interest in medicine, um, against my parents' better judgment. IT was so new, the idea of actually monetizing it and making a successful career in IT, it wasn't even on anybody's radar back then. Uh, yes, computers were becoming increasingly popular, but the idea was always that uh, there would remain, you know, a rare purchase specifically for commercial applications in big businesses. I think it was IBM which initially coined the phrase that ultimately there would only ever be a need for a handful of computers throughout the world. But obviously, that's been blasted completely out of the water.
1: Just based on your experiences with playing around with, I'm saying playing around loosely, creating, inventing radical solutions from a very young age. As a parent as well, what's your view on kids and computers? And I guess to a larger extent in this world that we're living in right now, it's going to be social media because you get two different th- schools of thought. Yet listening to you describe this right now, I'm just like, wow, that's what could potentially happen. So, How do you see it with parenting and balancing computer, time, skills, all of that?
0: That's a good question. That really is. I think to the best of our abilities as parents, we need to monitor uh, what our children are doing on computers and what they're exposed to. We should never feel that we're going to be benefiting them by blocking their access to computers in their entirety, obviously. But there are a lot of dangers online today that just didn't exist you know, even 10 years ago. So as soon it's developing very, very fast, we need to balance that against the fact that there is, you know, so much yet to be learned. There are so many opportunities. There are so many, um, you know, new skills to, you know, to be developed that we have no idea, or even now, you know, what's going to be done in the tech space in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So it's our children who are going to be introducing these new developments. It's our children who are going to be... Uh, Benefiting from the opportunities which we're giving them now. So it's really important that, you know, as much as possible, we remain involved. And um, I think an interesting conclusion, which my wife and I came to around this, was we want our children to learn. We want them to be able to experience as much constructively online as possible. And in order to make sure that we can protect them where there is a need for us to do so. We maintain absolutely open channels of communication with them at all times, about what they're doing. Not so much myself, because, you know, I mean, for good or bad, I'm very much a geek. But my wife is much warmer, she's more, much more the people person. My children seem to gravitate towards her because of that. You know, It's a beautiful thing to see. So, in combination, We offer a an opportunity for our children to have the softer side of their interactions with IT and with people online. Explores uh, with their mother; she has real interest in that. And with me, they have more of the uh, technical opportunities. There is that real, you know. uh, Sometimes I go home and. You know, my youngest um, say, "Daddy, how does this work? Why does this go on? Why is this? What's that?" I remember when he was about three years old, I bought a new computer, one well, of our own computers, obviously a Dell computer, and took that into the classroom at home. We do mainly homeschooling for our children, so we have one facility in the house. The first time that we sat him in front of the computer, it was very much a basic desktop computer with a, a normal monitor, keyboard, and mouse and running Windows. The very first thing he did was he started touching the screen to try to move icons around. Now, you know, obviously, we could have bought a touch sensitive screen, but it's just not something we did. But he was so used to using you know, his iPad and, you know, our phones and things that he just thought, well, that's good. that's just how you do it. It's what he expected. And so things that we see as being the norm today are very different to what our children would see as being the norm and their expectations. And that's massively beneficial to me and my business because it gives me front row insight into what the next generation expect to be standard as opposed to you know, just what's conventional now. It allows me to really explore with my team what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how to make it better. And so I would say that my, one of my most important R&D departments is my home. It really, really is. Yeah, so that's a, it's definitely a give and take. There are so many times where I feel that I'm helping, that I'm educating, that I'm informing others, my clients, my children. And in actual fact, I find that it's me who's receiving the education. It's me who's having my eyes opened. It's me who's, you know, suddenly sitting there and saying, well, that's a great idea. Why are we doing that? You really should, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a beautiful thing. We have to accommodate our children's expansion online, and we mustn't stand against it. But we do need to police what it is that they're experiencing and who they're interacting with.
1: Yeah, I guess that's, that's always the... I'm not going to say balance because balance is always, there. always important, <laughs> very impossible. Yeah. But that's the that duality that you guess you have to try and navigate, recognizing the fact that, like you said, this is the world they live in. This is especially for their next generation coming up. This is their world. This is all they know. And as we see with the metaverse and all this different, that like, it's just going to keep on growing and growing and growing. Yeah. So it's they need to be able to navigate and learn how to, to navigate in it while giving them the, I guess, some foundations to be able to talk to people, how you like your wife or to yourself from a technical perspective, and give them those guardrails, I say, give them the guardrails to be able to navigate in the best, safest possible way, rather than completely em- eliminating it or just moving, go ahead and do what you're doing. Okay. And I guess with you creating that computer from that age, when you look at your trajectory from then, is that when you were like, okay, and now I've done that, I've achieved that, I feel great about this. When I look forward, I want to step into more figuring how things work because you want to study computer science from 10 till when you eventually went to university, probably six or seven years later. What was that journey like for you in terms of your thinking and rationale around work?
0: Well, for me, it was quite clear to me that computers were the future. And I knew uh, that my past was... I will not was clear, but at least the, um, the first few steps were quite uh, obvious to me. When I went into uni, well, leading up to that, because my background had always been very much you know, in science with mathematics, a real interest in engineering, I had a real interest also in the environment. And that stemmed from, you know, very, very early in my life. When I was 12, I wrote a paper and I submitted it to the Kyoto Summit, the Global Summit on Climate Change. The paper was on the subject of massive agriculture and the increasing impact of deforestation. I was quite pleased because I did get a response. I was told that whilst my paper was kindly received, because of the fact that I wasn't a professor back then, I was 12 years old, obviously, it wouldn't be expanded on when discussed in a group conversation. But it's good to be acknowledged nonetheless. What I thought back then has been proven to be true um, I feel that there is a massive opportunity with computing to digitise a lot of practices which are very much analogue today, but in the process of digitising those practices you cannot help but reduce the environmental impact of things like heavy machinery, of moving materials around of printing, of you know, creating paper, filling wood if instead everything moves to you know, zero carbon, zero paper printing, digital delivery, digital actualization, no packaging, you know, being able to download material, which is you know, now all come to light since we've moved away from you know, 56K modems to high-speed broadband. You know? So these ideas which I had, uh, and I did actually expand on them in the paper, have come to light. And it's going to become the reality that we live in today. And the benefit of what we're doing in Shuri in my company, is moving that further forward, okay? You know, for the last 12 years, we've always, at the core, maintained a drive towards, you know, zero carbon sustainability, not at the expense of performance. There's no point in saying, okay, you can have this highly efficient server or desktop or laptop even, and it will do everything that your current, you know, solution does whilst using 90% less electricity, but it's not going to be able to perform the way that your current system does. No, that would be very easy to achieve. You know, obviously we could all have variations along ARM chips or Raspberry Pi on our and, you know, just muddle along with that. But no, what I wanted to do was to create a range of computers which would use significantly less electricity, were made out of likely recyclable materials, and so we've moved away from plastics in our architecture to metal and glass, which is you know, infinitely more recyclable, with a significant impact on the environment. And we've maximized those cooling methodologies, which I you know, began working on when I was 10 years old, to the point now where our systems will use 90% less electricity than the competition, whilst outperforming the performance capabilities of the competition computers. So whether you're talking about an Apple or a Dell or the Lenovo or any other HP or any other competition, an equipment that surely system will always be faster. It will always outperform the speed capability of any of those manufacturers and will always use significantly less electricity than those systems. Now, when we started releasing this technology onto the market, we were and are still a largely unknown entity. We're a very small company. But our client base is consistently growing because they recognise that the systems do what they say they're going to do. The clients have given us a lot of feedback. We found that the computers are you know, much more reliable. They're much faster. Because they're quieter, they have a lower impact on the human experience. So you, know, you find there's less instant incidence of headaches or you know, stuff, you know, accidents or anything of that nature people actually find them a lot more comfortable to use. And because they use so much less electricity, they're significantly cheaper to run. We did an experiment with New and neighboring Borough councils where they were replacing one suite, one department in the council with our computers. I think they went from HP to their Shuri and they found that their energy, their electricity spend, specifically on IT, dropped from, I think it was about £50,000 a year down to less than 5,000 for exactly the same number of computers being used for the same amount of time. Wow. So that was fantastic for us because the third party doing their own assessment outside of laboratory conditions and their results were absolutely stunning. So we know we're onto something. I'd say we're still in early days because you know, we're still not as widely spoken of as you know, the other manufacturers I mentioned. But we will be. We will at that point then become a 12-year overnight success.
1: <laughs> I actually would think it's even longer than that because this is a combination of what you did as a 10-year-old and the report you wrote as a 12-year-old Yeah. to create in probably, what, 20-plus years later, if you look at that timescale. Yeah. And there's something around being too early to market where we see a lot of people like, oh, I had this great idea years ago, but I never stuck with it. Yeah. And what was it with this two particular ideas coming together that gave you you stuck with it in a sense? Yes, you had you went into different areas and worked in different spaces, but you came back to this and you created this company twelve years ago based on ideas you had when you were ten and twelve. Yeah. What was it that kept I'm going to say that alarm bell ringing in your head that like, I need to do this. I need to put this out there.
0: The beauty of being able to do what I'm doing now is i'm living my dream not many people have the opportunity to actually do what they enjoy every single day it has been a journey you know we're still at a point in time where pushing every day to get our products out there to get our services out there to let people know about us and to you know to buy in to our capabilities if the passion were not there when i was so much younger when i was 10 years old for example then it would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to sustain it this long. And what that does is it gives you the impetus to continue to push forward when the rest of the world is saying, just stop, just go and get the job, just go and do something else, anything else, you know. You had a guest you interviewed previously called uh, Kate Wolf in the NFT space, an illustrator. And I remember in that interview, she was introduced to web design by her father when she was eight years old. And before that, she'd been doing a lot of digital art design on her computer. And what her father did was he helped her to put her work online, give her that digital space online, that space in which to create a portfolio. It was like a blank space in which to use a palette to create something. And it was really interesting listening to that interview because what she then did was she continued to move forward, you know, through Lush and you know, opportunities which presented themselves at FIT and then uh, moving into the NFT space. It was really interesting because initially there was kickback. She wasn't able to get the kind of sales which she wanted to achieve, but she was doing what she wanted to do. She was doing what she was passionate about. She was doing what she was doing since she was, I think, seven, eight years old. So if more people are giving the opportunity to recognize that there is purpose in chasing your dream, then we can see beautiful things coming to light in the world. The reality of the world today is, you know, we're forced to go through the educational system, get a a number of qualifications, and go get a job, get a mortgage, marriage, kids, and so on and so forth, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But if you're passionate about something, something, anything, as long as it's what's relevant to you and you're good at it, then we should be given every opportunity to to pursue that passion. I think the worst thing that I can imagine in the world, for me personally, would be to get to a point in time where I sit back and I ask myself, I wish I had tried. You know, there are people who live 60, 70, 80 years, and they get to that advanced stage in life and they say, I never really tried that thing that I was passionate about. That's the thing I was interested in, and that's the thing I was curious about. Not knowing that they could have taken their life in an entirely different trajectory. They might have been successful, they might have been happy, they might have been both. And that doesn't mean success by the world's terms, that means success by the terms of the individual. So I'm quite fortunate. I recognize that, you know, it, it, it's a rare gift to be able to do this. But had I not had that impetus and the support of my parents, which maintains to this day, even though they're still a little bit upset about the fact that I didn't become a doctor. I think not as this would have happened. So it really is important to, you know, our parents, our teachers, those who are guardians of us at you know, early stages in our lives, you know, be that in our, you know, teens or our twenties even our thirties. We have to recognise the importance of finding advice, of finding support, of finding buy-in and moving forward with what we're good at. It doesn't have to be what's popular at the moment. It doesn't have to be what everyone's talking about—crypto or NFTs or the metaverse—even. But it has to be something that you're actually passionate about. You can literally monetize anything if you're good at it. You just have to be certain that it's what you want to do, as opposed to it just being something which you've heard of and you said, "Yes, well, it's a shot." It has to be more than that for it to work.
1: I guess with you that obviously the certainty was clear <laughs> from what you were doing from a young age, it was there, that path was there. But then I see you're talking to someone who is not so certain. They don't quite know what their future holds for them. And like you said, it's like, I might have a passion or I feel like I have a purpose, but at the moment I'm either too early to a little market, just like you were, for example, or I need to go out and earn some money and therefore I don't feel like I can chase this, this dream. And therefore you let, I'm going to say life kind of beat you down and forget what that dream really was about. And that spark gets killed, the spark gets extinguished. So what advice would you potentially give to someone to be able to keep on nurturing that spark, even if you do have to get a job in the meantime or around finding that, that purpose and that path. So, you don't live a life of regrets that you just talked about?
0: Yeah, of course. As much as possible, I think it's important that people recognize that we're all different. That, you know, just because you see or hear about someone doing something, you think you have to aspire to achieve the same kind of thing. I mean, uh, let me clarify on that. When I was in school, yes, I was good at maths. Yes, I was good at sciences. I enjoyed, you know, reading. I had a a real passion around uh, literature. But I was also very good at sports. I was good at running, I was good at track athletics, I was good at football. And so a lot of my teachers felt, you know, the young black boy, I should concentrate on athletics. I should, you know, spend more time on the track. And, you know, I was good at it. I read meters and 200 meters were my specialities. But it wasn't, I believe, because they thought that I wasn't good at anything else. It was simply because they thought that uh, the Young black boy, that was probably going to be the best path to success for me. So I recognised that as being their attempt to assist me in reaching a level of success which was more accessible to me, and which was, in some way, based on you know my ability. In exactly the same, well, not exactly the same way, but in a similar fashion, you know, my parents wanted me to go into medicine or, you know, or finance, it's because they wanted me to be comfortable, to be successful as they believe success was back then. And they wanted it to be something which was attainable to me. But at the same time, they didn't block anything that I wanted to look into. I remember, I think before I, in my early teens actually, I remember speaking to my mother I spoke to about lots of books. This is, you know, back in the days when you had to go to bookshops to get a specific book. I spent a lot of time in the library. Yeah. We lived in Town, we lived in Swangdon. And I used to go into the library every single weekend. Yeah. You know, it was religiously important to me. And I found out about books I wanted to own. So I'd go home and I'd tell my mum, Mum, I want to get this book on the coefficient of drag and um, wind tunnel testing. Could you get this book for me, please? She said, okay. She goes, she gave me the book. A couple of weeks later, I said, okay, Mom, I'm really interested in learning about thermodynamic engineering. Could you get me this book, please? She said, okay, fine. Go okay, get this book. Last time, Jane's Manual on Military Aircraft Engineering. Mom? Okay, fine, right, Jim. I'll get you the book. And so she got me these books. And what she was doing, I know that she was aware of it because we've since spoken, was she was accommodating my voracious appetite for learning. She wasn't sure where i was going to go with it she still wanted me to go into medicine but she also recognized that she had to give me the opportunity to find my own path so as parents as educators as teachers as guardians we should ensure that we are giving our children the opportunity to find their own paths. but in exactly the same way we should be doing that for ourselves we shouldn't think okay i'm 50 years old now 60 years old now it's too late for me. There's no opportunity for me to, you know, look into my passion or to chase my dream. No, no, there's always an opportunity. If you've got time to sit back and watch, you know, a streaming movie, then you've got time to, you know, put some time aside just to look into your passion a bit more. If you've got time with a lunch break to take a, a long walk or, you know, to do something, you know, no one's working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You must have some downtime. And if you're passionate enough about, about anything, then you will use some of that downtime to learn more about it, to educate yourself further, to dabble. Even if you wanted to freelance in something, which is something that people really should take advantage of. You know, you can work with so many so many companies, so many businesses, so many organisations as a unpaid staff member, if you demonstrate that you're willing to learn, that you're willing to benefit the organisation but you just need exposure to what it is that you're interested in. Many, many times, you know, business leaders or managers are going to be willing to have those conversations. It doesn't mean the answer is always going to be yes, but it means that you're giving yourselves the opportunity to take that first step. So if that means you're working, you know, a normal job five days a week, surely you can spend some time after you finish work. Learning. You can spend half an afternoon on a weekend working in the industry, you can, you know, with the writing provider to working from home, you don't even have to be in a specific location for many types of work, you know, obviously not hospitality or retail for example. but there are many, many spaces where you can work remotely and be as deeply involved within an organisation as if you were arriving in an office every single day of the working week. So the opportunities are there. The question is, how badly do people work with opportunities.
1: Everything you talked about now for me sounds like it's you have to be intentional around creating that space around what it is you want to do. So, yes, you're going to have to sometimes go and work and do what you need to do. And you're nine to five, man, and always necessarily aligned to what it is you want to chase. But you still have time that you can create. And that could be time and it's about sacrifice as well isn't it because there are times when you have to sacrifice going out to a club or spending time with friends or watching tv and and chilling and streaming where and it's interesting how as you were talking i was thinking around around compound interest and how those half an hour an hour a day can start to add up because you hone in as you start to feed that curiosity just like your mum was allowing you to feed your curiosity even though she had her hopes and dream aspiration for you but she's like no i'm going to allow him to keep on tapping into that. As we, I guess, I'm thinking about now we're in this space we're in and the way the world has worked has changed. There's a lot more, like you said, there's a lot more opportunities available. There's a lot more space where you can even reach out to people, have conversations with them to learn more about that potential field or to share some of your knowledge that you might have or to write papers like 12 year old you did. Which, uh, actually, you can get that on different ways. Now is no longer oh, you have to write to a specific place. Now you can put it out on, I don't know, Medium, LinkedIn, social media, whatever. There's so many avenues available to you. It just comes down to how serious am I about this? Like, okay, you say you want it, but how serious are you? Are you willing to do what it takes so you are able to, to get there to create the opportunity for you? And it's when I think back to Zanshuri and um, your organisation. What would you want to see happen? Because thinking about the cost savings, that's one element, thinking about the impact on the environment that your systems have, that's a massive one. Yeah, like you said, you're relatively unknown. And I'm listening to this, these figures, I'm listening to countries talk about emissions and global warming and making a difference and writing out all the different targets and goals. But one of those major areas is around the system that they use. So what can be done to be able to get organizations to to think about their system rather than going to the generic ones that they use from time to time in terms of emissions and being greener?
0: Well, it's really quite straightforward. And I guess it's easy for me to say that because I've been doing it for some time now. But we as an organization are a member of an all-party parliamentary group on specifically data center energy use. We're also involved in the COBRA Committee on Emergency Response to Disasters. And we're also involved with some international organizations, one of which specifically is Risky Global, again, dealing with international disasters and fast-moving events. Now, the reason that we have those involvements is because we recognize, and it's something which has been, as I said, has been important to me and to the business from day one, the importance of ensuring that the benefits which we offer through our technology have to become more widespread. They have to become the norm. Yes, we're running a business, and yes, we have to be profitable. But at the same time, we want to get to a point in time ultimately where every manufacturer is making computers which are massively energy efficient, which are massively sustainable and of benefit to the environment. Computers are ubiquitous now in a way which no one could have imagined 20 years ago. We have them in our pockets, we have them on our desks, we have them on our, you know, built into our TV sets, we have them all over the place. You know, every workplace has you know, at least one computer per member of staff. So much so now that you know, there are computers which are used in the cryptocurrency space, for example, Bitcoin mining, which use in combination more energy than the fifth largest country um, on the planet, for example. And so these things are massive, massive issues which no one is really talking about. So, in a similar way to a company like Tesla, for example, making people sit up and recognize that the electric car is a viable alternative to the internal combustion engine, it doesn't mean that Tesla are going to own that space indefinitely. No. Yes, they are making a significant profit at this moment in time, but eventually, Every other manufacturer, and we're seeing it happen today, is rapidly moving into the electric car space, or if not the um, you know alternatives to fossil fuel motorised space. So we want to do something similar. Yes, we are first in the industry with an entire range of massively energy efficient computer systems. Yes, we have the first zero carbon data centre, not just in the UK but in the world operating right here in Southend. We're in a position where we can introduce changes which are going to have an impact globally. And it is profitable to us as an organisation, yes, and I I do hope for myself and my shareholders that that remains so from the moment possible. But I also recognise that my ultimate goal is looking back on the world and saying, yes, I made things better. I made things more sustainable. I Allow people to breathe air which was better for them, which was beneficial to them. And the only way that we can do that is by making ourselves more visible, making it clear that, you know, these products exist out there. You know, we make a quite significant push, um, you know, towards the holiday season sales this year, mostly because, yes, we want people to know about what it is that we're doing, but also because we want people to recognize. Those conversations that they're having about sustainability and about greening really an options as opposed to going down the standard existing route don't have to just be theoretical conversations. You can actually make steps. You can make decisions. You can make purchases which are going to realise your aspirations. You can actually make it happen. You don't have to wait until 2025 where government directors become the law. You don't have to wait until the point where all the companies are you know, manufacturing computers which you know, use less energy than an LED light bulb, which is what we do, you can do that right now. You can make the decision, you can work with your wallet and you can make the world a better place. Every single time you switch on your computer, whether you have one computer in your, on your desk at home or whether you and your staff have 30,000 computers in one company, which is spread across a number of nations around the world, you're making a difference. You can make that difference right now. So when people realize that these opportunities exist, these options exist, this computer technology is out there, and you know you can buy it today and have it delivered by you know, in two days' time, then we'll know that you know we've actually been successful in achieving our goal, in ultimately making the world a better place. That's what matters the most.
1: that you just said you can you can vote with your money you can take real action and move you away from theory really really resonates because I think we see it happen in so many different areas where you talk and talk and talk and talk but yet the action doesn't seem to doesn't seem to come so it's like if you really care about making a difference to the environment this is one great way of being able to do that and be able to show that actually It's a completely different system. You get everything that you get in a normal system, but with the two added benefits of you're making an impact to the environment and you're saving money, which is what you want anyway. So so from a a profit, reputational, caring, social CSR perspective, it ticks so many different boxes. Like It completely makes sense. But do you come across any, I'm going to say, oppositions from other those of you who are your competitors who have been in the market for a very long time, or even from organizations who, because it's still new, they're not quite sure.
0: We do. Yeah, we do. It's an annoyance, really, because we're so passionate about what we do. We recognize the importance of it and, um, you know, the potential benefits should our systems become significantly more widespread than they are now. So there are a lot of companies which are... um, you know, in the carbon offset space, you know, making um, carbon token purchases. And it's upsetting because they are able to say that they are green, that they're focused on sustainability. When it's a little bit of looking, uh, a little bit of searching can actually, you know, make it clear that they're just spouting a lot of hot air. So it just makes it more important that more people hear about what we're doing learn about us and buy our products, you know, which is part of why, you know, I'm so happy that you asked me to come and do this interview today, because I recognise that it's all well and good just continue to model along and exist and, you know, we're more than surviving now, fortunately, but we need to push harder, not because we want to do more than just survive, but because it's important that the world sees us successful. It has to recognise the value in making the purchase of you know, a range of systems which are you know, going to give you a return on your investment so much more quickly than other manufacturers. You know Our products are by no means cheap to purchase, but they're very cost-effective to run. They're very, very efficient because they have fewer living parts. There are maintenance issues which just don't exist on our systems at all. And reliability is just through the roof, so it's fantastic. You have companies which say that they, you know, reduce their carbon emissions by the tons this year. In the entire 12-year history of the our carbon emissions have never exceeded 100 tons, ever. And we're at a point now today where our carbon emissions annually are in the single-digit area. Our data center is zero carbon. It's largely a battery-run operation, which just falls back onto the grid when necessary. And that should be the norm. It should be normal to do that. So the way for us to raise our profile outside of, you know, conventional spaces is a bit similar to that freelancing option I was speaking to you about. We've given away a lot of computers into the educational space. We've given away a lot of our capabilities in the third world. We've experimented with existing solutions which basically don't work. And we've introduced our solutions which have increased the capability of uh, the individual or the organisation in the third world, so that they can compete on an equal footing with the first world, with the Western world, as it were. For example, we equipped a hospital in West Africa with thirty of our computers, and we also introduced our energy solar energy solution, which is basically a solar array of solar panels powering a suite of twelve volt batteries. And those batteries, in turn, power the computers. The batteries are charged by the sunlight in the course of the daytime, and the computers just use that energy from the batteries. Now, solar is something which can be introduced anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be the sunniest parts of the world. But the failing that a lot of people don't recognize is if you introduce these alternative energy solutions alongside efficient end-of-channel equipment, where your computers are more efficient, where your electricity devices are more efficient, then it makes better sense to work with those alongside the alternative energy solutions. So we're now in a position where uh, in that West Africa solution, because our computers are so energy efficient, there will never be a realistic point in time where they will completely deplete the power storage capability of the battery array. So that batteries could then be used further to charge USB devices, whether that's handheld phones, whether that's pocket torches, whether that's low-energy devices capable of running on firewall 12 volt. So instead of just giving people or organisations their ability to work irrespective of grid electricity failings, you're suddenly giving them an improved lifestyle in its entirety. They're not dependent on burning fossil fuels. They're not dependent on collecting Wood or, you know, coal or, you know, these systems which are going to be impactful and have a degenerative effect on their immediate environment. Instead, they just go to the computer and press the on button the way that we do here in the Western world. And what that means now is that that massively growing population is suddenly being exposed to sanctuary and seeing sanctuary on every computer that they see in the hospital on every computer that they see in their schools and gradually they'll see them more Windows computers in the workplaces. So with the Western world, we've been reluctant because they have stuck with um, the existing status quo. The emerging world, which is much more populous, from, you know, the of India, Nigeria, and South Africa, is embracing this new technology. Mobile payments were significantly more ubiquitous in Africa than they were in the Western world two years ago. Everyone was using mobile payments back then when here in the UK used to pull out credit cards or sit in front of our computer or go to the shops. You couldn't just literally be in the market and bartering and making purchases on your Nokia 8110, for example, which was standard back then. And everyone did it. Now, all of a sudden, we're suddenly realizing, okay, we should be making better use of this. There's Bluetooth, there's, you know wireless technologies, blah, blah, blah. But all of a sudden, the Western world is behind. And the beauty of it, is we're in a position where our products are being seen more widely in an environment where the population is very young, is very motivated, is very driven. And so their uptake is significantly greater and there is much less challenge. We don't want to be in a position where we're saying, right, we've made this place better than that place. We do want to see equality. We do want to see um, capability across the board. And it isn't just something which I think is a good idea. I have to drink my own Kool-Aid. Within jury, we have a good mix of people from different parts of the world. Now, my business partners are black women and white men. And it's important that we're all working together and pushing forward, not because we're trying to make an example for the world, but just because it should be the norm. We're not doing it because we're trying to make some kind of statement. We're doing it because we're in business to help to make the world a better place. Yes, we want to be profitable. Yes, we want to be successful. And me personally, I'd like to be in a position where when I'm doing my talks in schools, which I've been doing for about five years now, it's not a surprise for the guest speaker to be a black CEO of a technology company, as opposed to someone who's an athlete or who's in entertainment or music or something of that nature. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should be seen as being capable of doing everything because we are capable of doing anything. It really matters.
1: This has been empowering, inspiring, and also masterclass in a sense when it comes to technology and the way a lot of things that we don't think about actually work and also around the actions that we can actually take around making a difference to in our day-to-day lives, but in the wider context of organizations and leaders in particular who are listening to this, who will have that power to be able to make a difference and take action. This has been that masterclass in how you can do it. But I love what you said, rather end around, actually, you know what, if the rest of the world doesn't want to take it up because they're so used to what they're doing, that's fine. The global majority is where that market is growing and expanding. And being able to tap into those markets and Give them something not only that makes a difference and improves their lives, but makes a difference and to the environment, and that wider context for me is absolutely amazing. And I guess the last question I, I always like to finish off as interviews with is, what does leadership mean to you?
0: The thing about that question is, uh, and it's a fantastic question. is um, my answer, and I've been asked something similar. always been seen as a bit off-kilter. I'm
1: here for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for that. There is no one way to answer that question, so bring it.
0: I think the most important characteristic of a good leader is the ability to serve more than anything else. I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to explore my passion. Uh, very early in my life. Um, But as I was growing older, I had to move into other spaces, you know, as you alluded to, my work in various other renovations. And for a time, I worked in the police service. I was actually a police officer in London, in the Metropolitan Police. And I went into that work, for example, because it was something which uh, had existed for a long time in my family lineage. Uh, My father before we came to the UK with a military man, his father with a military man, also my grandfather. When I was doing that work, I found that every single day was going to be different. But the reason that every single day was different was because there was no standard, there was no consistent expectation of you in a way that similar to people might expect in a nine-to-five job in an office, for example. And going into that work, recognising that I had to be able to answer questions, to assist people. Because no one ever goes to a police officer, or very rarely go to a police officer just because they're having a laugh. They're coming to you because they need help. They really need help with something that's you know, in, their, in their mind, and rightfully so in many cases, it's like, or well, death. If you're not able to completely, absolutely prioritize the information that you're being given and act on that information, someone's life could be at stake. That's literally the case. And what I was able to take away from my years as a police officer was if I wasn't willing to serve the way that I did, complete strangers, to listen to their needs, to put my life on the line because of what someone who I've just met 30 seconds ago has said to me is happening around the corner, then I would never have been able to literally save the lives that I saved in my career as a police officer. I wouldn't have been able to make that difference. And I've got commendations as a consequence. I've got people who, you know, are my friends, people who have actually said, "Well, I've never experienced that, you know, from anybody, you know, my friends, my family, people who have known me all my life. I've just met you. You're a police officer and, you know, you've changed my life. I didn't expect that when I went into that work. What I expected was that I was going to be dealing with, you know, the criminal... (laughs) Minority of the world on a regular basis. But it helped me do the work that I'm doing now because, on the one hand, some of the difficulties I experienced made it clear to me that there is nothing, absolutely nothing on earth that I cannot deal with. I might not win, but I'll always give it the best shot I possibly can and I will always learn from it. So when you have that understanding, it eliminates fear. Yeah, we've said it gets to the point where fear doesn't exist. But it makes feel something which you understand as being a, a, not a priority. It doesn't have to be the limiting factor. The only limiting factor is you. How are you going to deal with the environment you find yourself in? How are you going to deal with the problems which have arisen as a consequence of decisions which were made without your knowledge, or decisions which were made with your knowledge? If you're willing to go into every experience with the same intention to learn to serve and to act, then you can be a great leader. Wow.
1: That for me is not off guilty at all. That for me is absolutely <laughs> spot on. And when I think about, about leadership and what it's about to be in service of people when you take on that mantle, and kind of broke another question, which I'm going to ask you, actually, even though I was going to wrap up, but I was around... In your time with the police, you also served on, on the front lines, riot control, cause protection, intelligence. I know you just alluded to some of what that experience was like, but from when you think about that whole period, apart from what you just shared right now, what was your biggest or
0: one of the key learners that came out from that time for you? People always have expectations. Whether those expectations are positive or negative, they're there no matter what. So you have to be able to recognize that those expectations may have so little to do with you as to be almost inconsequential. It doesn't mean that you can ignore them. No. It just means that you need to have your eyes open to see them for what they are. Expectations. It doesn't mean that there's a the reality. You do not have to conform just because someone's experience of police officers has being Swazil so or what they've read in the media or you know someone's experiences of black people has been you know, XYZ, or they believe something on the basis of what someone else has said to them or what someone experienced many, many years ago or something. You don't have to conform with that. I get a lot of the time people saying, Oh, you're very well spoken. Oh, you're, you're quite erudite. How do you do that? Where do you learn? Where, where were you brought up? Were you born in the UK? No, I wasn't born in the UK. But I had a determination to improve myself back then as I have today, and I'll continue to do so. So working in the police, I found that I really had opportunities to change people's expectations, not by bludgeoning them into acceptance of the reality of who I am, but by demonstrating my abilities as a human being, as a man, as a decent person, not as a media cutout, not as um, a negative entity who they want to minimise their interaction with. Just learn to not take things personally. Learn to recognise that you know, everyone's hurting, everyone's had some kind of experiences which you know, are not necessarily positive. But you can give them a positive experience. You can decide that, you know, even if you're in a bad mood, you can put that aside, even if it's just for 30 seconds or 5 minutes or more, just to make sure that you're feeding into people and you're feeding into society. A positive experience, because that comes back to you. I truly believe in karma. I never, ever, in my time in the police, drew my weapon in anger. You know, in training, absolutely. There were times when perhaps it might have been the thing to do. It was definitely expected at times. But you know, I'm fairly fit. I always have been fairly fit, and there's always been a better way of dealing with things than than pulling up baton or, or something worse. The best tool that we have is our voice and our words. So as long as you can bring that to the fore and recognize that this is an opportunity, everything is an opportunity to make the world a little bit better, to move the notch just a little bit further forward and take that opportunity and do something with it, then you're winning. No matter what the world says, no matter what, um, you know, you're reading the papers, you have to keep pushing forward. I have no doubt at all that you know, things are going to work out the way they're supposed to work out, and it will be beneficial for the majority in the end. It doesn't mean there's not going to be dark times when in we're interim, it. doesn't mean there aren't going to be negative experiences until then. But as long as we continue to move forward as positively as we possibly can as individuals, then we just cannot fail. I truly believe
1: that. What a way to end i'm just i don't have anything else to add to that i'm just gonna I'm just gonna, I'm, just, I'm just gonna leave that one there and let that one just to settle and permeate any information like if you want to find out more about zanzuri all that information is going to be available in the show notes their website more about chip and his organization and how you can get involved in, and work with them and the brilliant work that they're doing and i guess my last thing will be just to say thank you appreciate you just sharing your journey on picking different bits and pieces and expanding i'm mean, personally going to say my mind in the way of looking at things and making an impact so thank you very much
0: thank you shipping been a real
1: pleasure this is everyday leadership and i'll see you next week